0: Hello, and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome back for episode six of the Psychedelic Christian podcast. I have a bit of an advisory warning about the content of today's interview. A word that some of you may consider adult language or profanity is used a few times in this interview, but not for the purposes of vulgarity. It is used as a means of engaging with modern culture, and I'm sure you will understand why in the context of the conversation. So, if you are the type to be offended by a few bad words, consider yourself warned.
1: Oh... Fudge.
0: Only I didn't say fudge. I said the word. The big one. The Queen Mother of Dirty Words. The F-dash-dash-dash word. What did you say? Huh? That's... What I thought you said. the car. Go on. It was all over. I was dead. What would it be? The guillotine, hanging, the chair, the rack, the Chinese water torture? <laughs> Mere child's play compared to what surely awaited me. I hope you are enjoying these conversations as much as I am. And if so, Please take a moment to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to connect with me and share your thoughts and experiences, you can email me at contact at You can also follow the Psychedelic Christian Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and MeWe. I'm not very active on these social media platforms, but it is a good way to let everyone know when a new episode is posted and offers me an opportunity to reach and engage with listeners. I'm also hoping to make the podcast available on YouTube and Odyssey in the near future. Our guest today on the Psychedelic Christian Podcast is Rev. Dr. Brian Baker. Brian shares with us his journey of faith to the church and introduces us to his Christian ministry at the yearly Burning Man Festival. I normally end every show with our theme music, but considering the Burning Man Festival sparked a memory of a song that I'm relatively certain you've never heard before. So hang around after the interview to hear an eccentric, haunting, and trippy Christian folk tune. But first, let me introduce you to today's guest. Today on the podcast, we're joined by the Reverend Brian Baker. Brian is a West Point graduate and a United States Army veteran. Since 1991, he has served as an Episcopal priest in Hawaii, Idaho, California, and now in Kentucky as rector of Christ Episcopal Church. Brian also has a thriving ministry sharing the church's mission of Christ's love at the Yearly Burning Man Festival at his camp, Religious AF. Reverend Brian Baker, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us.
1: You're welcome. It's great to be here.
0: Well, Brian, if you could, please just give us an idea of your early life, maybe your influences as a a Christian and what brought you to the Episcopal Church and a little bit about your career and your family and how you became a priest and in what capacities you served. I know that you served in the military. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit about your military experience as well.
1: Um, I was not raised in any religious tradition at all. Family didn't go to church. It wasn't until I was a cadet at West Point. And I, I started dating my wife when we were 15 years old in Northern Virginia. And it was her idea to go to West Point. Um, so I went to West Point because that's where my girlfriend wanted to go to school. And she was in the fifth class. I was a year ahead of her. So I was in the fourth class where women were admitted. And she was in the fifth class. Um, with women. So it was still pretty new to have women at West Point at that time. And it was pretty harsh, but she um, sang in the choir at West Point and I would earn points with my girlfriend if I went to church. So that's what got me going to church at the age of 18. I started going to church and went sort of reluctantly. I, I was pissed off at God for a variety of reasons. And But about eight months in or so, I had a conversion experience at church where I was just overwhelmed with God as love and me as beloved of God. And that opened something in me, that this hunger to understand and know. So I joined Bible studies and retreat groups and got very involved at West Point in the Christian community. And then when Andrea and I graduated, she was raised in the Episcopal Church, so we started going to the Episcopal Church. And I, at West Point, I really liked the ritual of the Roman Catholic worship, but I wasn't too keen on some of the the doctrinal narrowness of the Cat Roman Catholic Church. So the Episcopal Church really fit me. And we were state we were both in the army. And during our time in the army, when we weren't at work, we were volunteering at our local Episcopal church doing youth ministry. And it was that experience that opened up for me the possibility of going to seminary. And and I went really for two reasons. One was I wanted to do something like every January 1st, I would do this mental inventory of, you know, what have I done this year that really helped the world? And I liked the army. I was good at it, but I trusted the machine enough that if I left, I would be replaced with an equally good, you know, captain in the army or whatever. And I was enjoying this work in the church. So I thought maybe becoming a priest might be fulfilling. Um, But the other reason I went to seminary was I was really, I was very passionate about my spiritual path but I wasn't certain, and I was in love with Jesus and really loved reading the Bible, but I wasn't certain about the church. And it was because I was hearing things like Christians had to believe in order to be Christian um, that really didn't resonate with my heart. And I wasn't sure if the church was the right place for me. And I figured the best way to find out because I was too embarrassed to ask my priest questions would be to go to seminary and sort of sit in the back row, um, absorb what was being absorbed. Um, So I went in part to to try out a vocation, but also really to determine, um, to get the information I needed to wholeheartedly commit to my spiritual path. And I felt like I was at a deficit because I didn't go to Sunday school growing up and I had such a lack of information that I felt seminary was the most efficient way to fill that need. Um, And when I went, I absolutely fell in love with the way the Episcopal Church um, presented uh, the teachings of Jesus. So I became a priest and served. I've just finished 30 years, which allows me to officially retire. And in that time, I served in Hawaii, which is where Andrew and I were in the army, in Idaho, California, and now Kentucky. And when I was in California, I was the dean of the cathedral in Sacramento for 12 years. And then my wife rejoined the Army as an Army chaplain and got stationed in Fort Knox, Kentucky. So that is what moved us from California to Kentucky. And Andrea's um, working full-time as an Army chaplain, and I'm working uh, part-time in the small church outside of Fort Knox.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for that. I would like to dig in a little bit to that story. Y'all went to West Point. Where were you from originally?
1: Northern Virginia, just oh, south of okay. uh, Washington, D.C. Both of my dad was in the Air Force and her dad was in the Army.
0: Okay, right. And what year, you know, you mentioned that you were in the fourth class that allowed women to West Point. Uh, roughly, what year was that?
1: Yeah, I graduated from high school in 79 and West Point in 83.
0: Uh, may sound like a long time to some of our younger listeners, but not that long ago, you know. <laughs> no. Um, it certainly sets a certain cultural context for the military in the United States around the year 1980. And, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that was a big struggle, allowing women into West Point.
1: Yes, it was a big struggle and it was a big, it was very hard on the first classes of women. I mean, it was absolutely brutal because there were a lot of guys there that did not want them, did not think they should be there. It was pretty, I mean, it was pretty harsh still when we were there, but it was the worst. When, when I was there, what, the year I entered, all four years had women. So the first women West Point graduates were seniors when I was a freshman. So it, and it, you know, it became a little better once there were women in all of the classes, but still it was pretty hard.
0: Right. Not radically different from, you know, racial integration in a a lot of ways in the generation before. Yeah. Well, you mentioned something in passing and you talked about being embarrassed to ask your priest questions. Um, So many of us almost idolize our local religious leaders sometimes, but yet we're too afraid to ask them, you know, the questions that are burning in our hearts. I don't want to go off on a too much of a tangent, but what do you, what do you think that is? You know, a lot of times someone will be asking me a question. I'll say, well, have you talked to your pastor about it? And they're like, no, no, I don't want to mention this to my pastor. I'm thinking, why not? You know, if, if you value his knowledge base, if you value his experience and his knowledge of the word of God, why not? Are people afraid of judgment from the religious leader or maybe being considered an outcast if they ask a
1: question that's not appropriate? Well, for me, it had a different motivation. I, I, was, I was comfortable talking with my priest. It really had to do with, I assumed everyone else knew the answers. Like I assumed I was the only one that had these questions about like what really happens in baptism, what is, happens in the Eucharist. And, and I, I didn't want to like just appear naive because everyone else was taught this when they were seven. Um, and of course I learned later that no one knows this, but I do experience on the other side of it, sort of a reluctance of a lot of people to engage. And that's like, I mean, I, and I don't really know, I can't answer beyond speculation of what, what that's about.
0: I think maybe you're, right. I think maybe it has to do with embarrassment or our ego. I know, you know, I joined the Episcopal church about six years ago. You know, there was so much to learn that I had not experienced in my youth as a Baptist and in my young adulthood as a Presbyterian. There were a lot of things that I saw and that I didn't understand. You know, why we were doing certain rituals and certain liturgical activities, and I had to swallow my pride and ask a lot of questions. and uh, And I'm really glad I did. You know, I enjoy learning, but our sometimes our ego prevents us from asking questions and and that's a shame because uh there's so much for all of us to learn in every walk of life so you are active in the burning man community if you don't mind just quickly give us or maybe just answer the question what is the burning man festival for those who may have never heard of it
1: um burning man this it's hard to explain succinctly but i'll do the best i can Burning Man is a, world, is a global community that meets every year, except, you know, COVID, we'll just pretend it's normal times, meets once a year in a dry, alkali lake bed desert two hours north of Reno, and meets for nine days, creates a city of 70,000 people, and we hold dear 10 principles, things like radical inclusion no trace, participation, um, gifting. And it's kind of a utopian kind of community where for these nine days, people bring their best selves. It's a place where you can be playful and have a lot of fun. Um, there are two things I want to feature about Burning Man that might help explain kind of the culture. One is that, the organi- that at Burning Man, there are thousands of activities Anything you can fathom that people might think is fun is happening at Burning Man. And at Burning Man, it's a gift-giving economy. Everything is free. So all of these activities that you can imagine in your head that are happening at Burning Man are happening for free. And none of it is provided by the organization. It's all provided by the participants who, who form camps, and camps only exist to provide experiences for other burners, and a camp could be, you know, five people or it could be 300 people, and they work all year long to, to build something, to create something, and then haul it out to the desert and set it up in order for other people to enjoy it. So it's this riot of like playful, creative activity and anything you can fathom. I mean, there's a Thunderdome hosting gladiatorial battles. Um, There are, you know, you can have a five course French dinner. Um, There are lots of bars and yoga places and music venues. Um, There's the MASH camp that shows episodes of MASH all night long. Um, There's trapeze camp. Um, there's the Orgy Dome. I mean, everything you can imagine, it's happening at Burning Man. Um, and if, if you work all year long to build something, you know, like the trapeze camp, and you haul it out there, you want people to do, use it. So everywhere you go, people are saying, hey, why don't you come over here and try this? And so there's this, this generosity and playfulness and creativity, um, flaming skee ball someone was playing ski ball and said, you know what this needs? This needs some fire. And they built this thing out of steel and there's this flaming ball you hold in a heavy glove. You know, you turn the corner and there's like, here's flaming skee-ball and they want you to play their ski ball Um, So there's that sort of generosity and playfulness to it. Um, It's also in a really harsh environment. So there's a part of it that sucks bad. I mean, it's super hot during the day, super dusty, Um, cold at night. So you have to kind of strive to be there. And participation is one of the values. You're not spectators. You're there. You don't have to participate in everything, but you have to sort of be really present and participate in the experience. Um, And the harshness of it makes it that kind of thing. But the other thing I want to mention is the temple. Burning Man is this sort of riot of play and fun and frivolity and all of this. And then there's the temple, which is this beautiful, large structure. A different structure is built every year. A different artist designs it. And it's a blank canvas where people write on the walls their prayers, their hopes, their dreams, their laments. They bring mementos. Um, There'll be photographs, little altars, wedding dresses, And then anytime it's the most popular thing at Burning Man, everyone goes, most people go more than once. And whenever you go, there are little groups of people having, you know, their little rituals or sobbing or saying goodbye to something. Um, And as you walk through during the week, it sort of grows and grows and grows with sort of the pain and anguish and hope of the human heart sort of laid out and you're walking in that. And then the final thing that happens at Burning Man is the temple is burned, and when the temple is burned, everyone shows up and sits in absolute silence for an hour as they watch this temple burn, and you hear like sobs, and you know, but it was this, we're more connected in our brokenness than anywhere else, and in that moment, we're all sort of, it's the closest I felt to like the common human heart, is being gathered around the temple as it burns, so it has, I mean, there's lots of layers and depths to what make Burning Man special, but it has this playfulness and this openness, but also acknowledging the solemnity of, you know, the brokenness that we all experience. And I went in 2015 for the first time because my my hippie young adult daughter asked me to go. And I just absolutely fell in love. And... Realize that the kind of community that, that I've been trying to create in the church with marginal success, I found at Burning Man.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about that first experience? So, I'm assuming you weren't interested or invested in kind of Burning Man culture. So, I'm assuming you show up mostly naive to what may be there. Was it exciting, challenging, interesting, all the above? I, I could guess.
1: It was, well, it's a lot of work to prepare and, you know, it's a leave no trace environment. You have to bring everything you need, all of your food, all of your water. You know, it's, it's a lot of work to prepare. And fortunately, I had some burners in my congregation, the cathedral in Sacramento, who help, helped us prepare and know what to expect. And I knew, like, my daughter took me thrift shopping Um, beforehand because wearing creative clothing is part of it so you know I was already sort of opening myself to going into this very strange environment and I'm an early adopter and I like adventure Um, so I didn't know what to expect I wasn't anxious I was kind of eager for you know I thought it felt like going on this anthropological expedition where I'm going to encounter this other culture So I went into it excited and she, she picked a camp for me to stay in, for us to stay in of people that she would go to musical festivals with. And the name of the camp was Camp Perky Parts and Camp Perky Parts offered as their gift. They had some DJs, they had a sound system, a dance floor, and they would host parties. Um, And these were all like people in their thirties, hard partying people in their thirties, who welcomed this, you know, old priest in their midst with open arms and really helped me feel welcome. Um, so it was nice to have that home base as I then went out and encountered all of the wildness, um, that happens at Burning Man.
0: So what kind of parameters, like, is this maybe like 10 acres? Like, is it a long walk from one end to the other?
1: It's six square miles and 70,000 people it's a city of 70,000 people um, six square miles and the only way you can engage it is on a bicycle if um, you're not allowed to drive cars around um, and if you don't have a bike you're pretty limited to the extent of the city that you can see it's also a massive um, art festival there i think around 140 large public art structures Um, that are spread all over a mile, you know, you can go a few miles and in the middle of the desert encounter this huge, you know, beautiful art structure.
0: So is the the temple you spoke of, is that kind of centralized or is, or not necessarily?
1: The the man is in the very center and the man is burned on Saturday night and that's a big party. And then the temple is um, sort of kind of on the edge, the edge of the populated part of the city. The temple is sort of between the populated part of the city and where you go out into the wilderness because there's a lot of wilderness around as well.
0: Interesting. You know, one thing that caught my ear um, when you were explaining the temple is, and we don't have to dwell on this too long, but it um, spoke to me, is that you talked about people pouring out their hearts at this temple. And then at some point, the temple is burned it's almost as though that's like a votive even though i know this is not you know there's a yep. lot of different religious and spiritual concepts coming there together you know not everyone shares in the same spiritual identity there's something really primitive about that that even in the church when we consider fire and smoke carry our thoughts and prayers uh, yep. to the to the divine. And so even though everyone there may not be, may not share our, you know, religious values, there's something ancient and primitive, I think that speaks to the human consciousness about laying your burdens somewhere and setting fire to them. Right. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but it really, it really, uh, it really caught my ear when I heard you mention that.
1: Well, and it is very, I think I mean you're absolutely right and there's something sort of primal about that and even in the the origin story of Burning Man itself was in 1986 a group of people were on Baker Beach out in San Francisco um, on the summer solstice and it was a birthday party and they just for the heck of it they created this little effigy and they burned it on the beach and it was um a popular evening on the beach. There were lots of other parties on the beach and they all stopped what they were doing and came and joined hands encircling this burning effigy. And the Larry Harvey, you know, looked, saw this and was, um, and said to himself, like, there's something here There's something primal and significant that's happening here. So they just repeated it every year. And then it would, you know, it grew and grew and grew in significance and what it was about and something very organic happened. Um, but Burning Man is very good at, at tapping into those sort of primal things. And they're careful not to overlay it with a lot of meaning. Like no one will tell you what the man means because the man has no meaning attached to it. There's no one explaining what the temple is about. Um, but we all know what it's about. There's something very sacramental about how the temple functions, and it doesn't need a lot of sort of intellectual overlay.
0: So you have this first experience and somehow uh, it weighs upon you that maybe, maybe you need your own camp, or maybe you need to be there ministering in some way. What kind of fruit does that produce in your heart and mind? Like how does that manifest eventually?
1: Well, Part of my challenge in going to Burning Man was it's a gift-giving economy, and I had to not only do camps offer things for free, but burners are invited to go and participate in this gift-giving economy. So I had to think about what my gift would be. Like, what could I offer other burners that would have integrity to who I was as a priest, but also be actually a gift? like not be an imposition, not be triggering. Um, and I know there are a lot of people who've been wounded by the church. So if I offered something like super Jesus-y as a gift, that may not be, that that may be problematic. Um, so I created a blessing and I, I created a blessing that was as was True to my heart, it spoke everything I believed really about the gospel, but it didn't include any triggering, what I would assume was any triggering language um, or imagery. And so that was my gift. And I would go up to people and I would offer this blessing. Many of them would like tear up Um, a lot, would like start sobbing, fall in my arms, that kind of thing. And it was very powerful to be able to just go up to people and say can I bless you and because it's burning man they say yes and then I offer this blessing we have this encounter and then I move on like there was no one of the principles of burning man is decommodification nothing is a commodity there's no quid pro quo so the blessing had to be a gift and not an invitation for me to then hook them into my church or religion or whatever it was just a gift Give them the gift. Move on.
0: They've all heard that it's, spiel. So
1: yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so part of part of my experience was realizing, and the, the other thing about Burning Man is people are hungry for conversation, or they go to this thing thinking they're going to have an encounter that's going to shift them because it's a nine day hard thing to be at. It's a nine day retreat, and something's going to happen. And then they encounter a priest and since a third of the population has unfinished business with Jesus, you know, get running into a priest, gave them an opportunity to ask their questions or whatever. So that was the first hint that Burning Man was a place that readily was hungry for my gifts. Then when I got back that first week at Burning Man, I got back on a Saturday night, Sunday, I preached at the cathedral Um, And I preached all about Burning Man. I just told Burning Man stories because they were dying to know. And I preached about how I was converted to this community of Burning Man. And that sermon almost immediately went viral among burners worldwide. And which is interesting to note. And the reason I mention it is there are lots of good videos explaining what Burning Man is about, but it was the video of the priest that went viral. And it was seen you know, by, by like 20,000 burners within the first month or so. Because of that, other Episcopalians at Burning Man learned of me. We formed a group, and the next year we did a Eucharist at the temple. And this is where things really began to shift, because when we finished the Eucharist, we couldn't leave because people kept coming up wanting to receive communion or wanting to be blessed. And we had five five different people come up and say, are you doing this every day? Now never on Sunday morning has anyone ever come up after mass and said, are you doing like, can I come back tomorrow? Is this happening again? Right. Um, Right. And here's this place out in, you know, hippie land where people are saying, are you doing this every day? And I had one woman come up and say, I just laid my son's ashes in the temple. I'm afraid my other son isn't going to make it. Can I have communion? So there were these like powerful encounters. And what we realized was once this service was over and we leave, without a camp, there's no place for anyone to have engagement. And that's when we realized that we needed a camp and we needed a home base because clearly there are people here who want to engage or you know, have unfinished business with Jesus or whatever. And we need to be able to offer that in a decommodified, non-judgmental way. And so that's when we created a camp, but we we also knew there are so many people that are triggered by Jesus' language and by the church. That it need to, have, need to have a name that, that sort of shattered, that, that made it okay and safe. And that's when we came up with the name Religious As Fuck. Um, because we knew the iconoclasticness of the name would credential us um, as like, like we needed. And part of what makes the camp successful is that we're burners first. Like we love Burning Man and we're part, we're committed to this community and our gift happens to be, you know, Christian spiritual practice and conversation. Um, But we're part of them. We're not, we're not foreigners bringing something strange in. Um, And that name, I mean, that's a very burner kind of name, religious as fuck. Um, The name has been one of the best things going for us. And we've now gone twice as a camp in person and two times, unfortunately, virtually because Burning Man didn't happen the last two years. Anyway, it's been it's been great. Our first year, I had the sense that the city didn't quite know what to do with this Christian camp. And there were people that kind of tested us, you know, coming in naked or whatever, trying to see what the boundaries, you know, would we really accept them? Um, if someone was coming to our camp with no clothes on, you know, would we give them communion or, you know, whatever. Um, but after that first year, it really shifted to our second year where people were in the city were thanking us for what we had to offer. And we're really eager to get back on the playa.
0: In Christian circles, or even in uh, a conservative mindset, that term AF as fuck is maybe challenging, you know, to people who prefer to avoid, you know, explicatives. But in the in a cultural, colloquial context, it means intensity. So it almost is like saying you're intensely religious.
1: Right, exactly. Like,
0: yeah, and so not only do, do modern, you know, a younger generation cue into the A.F just verbiage because they use that regularly to describe things. Um, They might say they're happy AF or sad AF, you know, um, that's just part of their normal language. And so you're adopting that, which makes it more approachable and less, you know, culturally triggering. It it shows a certain amount of vulnerability. I think it shows that you're, you're willing to discuss things that may be, The average Sunday school leader is not willing to discuss, you know, so it it has a certain inviting, even though it may be off putting to some traditional Christian types, in a setting such as Burning Man, to me, it's, it almost appears to be acting in the opposite way. It acts as a, as an invitation, you know, come on in, we're willing to discuss things, we're willing to delve into the heavy topics, maybe, you know, by using certain verbiage like that. And also, it's not saying we're just spiritual. We don't really have any convictions. It's saying, no, we are religious. Not only that, we're intensely religious. Come on in. I really appreciate the choice of the name because it invites almost like a positive challenge.
1: Absolutely. And, and a more honest name would have been Christian as fuck because we're not, we're an explicitly Christian camp, but I felt like that was still, could be a little off-putting, whereas religious as fuck, you know, would, would convey 90% of what we wanted to convey, Um, and, you know, they could quickly find out that we were an explicitly Christian camp in what we were offering, but it really forces, I mean, going to Burning Man forces I think if you want to be there authentically, you to examine like what is central to the gospel message of Jesus and, and scruples around language, I don't think is central to the gospel of Jesus. So we don't want to let scruples around language get in the way of us being participants in this community and offering what we have to offer as the gospel and, and as well as scruples around clothing or not clothing. Um, Because Burning Man is a place, there's not a lot of nudity at Burning Man, there's a, you know, a fair amount of partial nudity at Burning Man, but it's a place where you can take your clothes off in the middle of the street and nobody will care, and it won't be sexualized. And um, for us to say you can't come into our camp, if you're partially nude, would immediately sort of put us outside of the ethos. Anyway, so it's it's having to think through those kinds of things and even come up with a nudity policy for our camp. Um, so for our camp, and I know this this may be going down a tangent you didn't want to go down.
0: No, no, this <laughs> is interesting because you know if if you're if you're arriving there in this kind of like anything goes radically non judgmental atmosphere, you know. At home in our churches in our communities, we set in we set whether they're written or unwritten. We set in certain precedences, like you need to dress a certain way, you need to act a certain way. Well, I can assume that wouldn't fly on the playa because it's an anything goes atmosphere. So, how does a Christian community establish protocols in in that kind of setting? I think I think where your this tangent you're going on is is excellent because I think in a much smaller degree, we all have to do that in our own homes and in our own neighborhoods. So how did y'all establish that there in a radically unjudgmental atmosphere? How did you set your own parameters for what's acceptable?
1: So thank you. The And I want to refine something that you said. It's not Burning Man is not an anything goes environment um, because of safety and consent. Burning Man is one of the safest, most caring about other people kind of community I'm in. And so anything goes, but it can't be dangerous, harmful to other people. And if it's going to involve certain things, there has to be full authentic consent. Um, you can't touch people. You know, it's, it's a very safe place. So I just wanted to be, wanted to clarify that. Um, now, I appreciate us, you bringing it, that
0: up. That's that's an important point to make because right. we tend to think if something is in anything goes atmosphere, then then there's not possibly not parameters of respecting everyone's individual concerns. But apparently, right. there that is that is one of the high points of respecting everyone as an individual. Um,
1: yes. So so for our camp, we there's implied consent for nudity at Burning Man. So like if you're in the middle of out, out somewhere at Burning Man and you take your clothes off, that, that, that's expected and there's implied consent. And, and but for us as a camp and we had people from the same church coming to our camp, um, you know, I went and a parishioner of mine went and we don't know, like there's no way for us to get consent for nudity from one another in our camp. Because if we had the camp meeting and we said, does anyone mind if we have nudity in camp? You know, you have peer pressure for people to not raise their hands or whatever. Um, So because of that and because our default world relations don't disappear when we come to Burning Man, um, our policy was if you're a member of our camp and you're in camp, you can't be nude. Um, so that there's safety, you know, if you're in your camp, you're not going to see your priest or your parishioner nude in camp. If you're out on playa, you can do whatever you want. And then if you don't want to see, you know, your parishioner nude, you just don't need to go where they are. Or if you're not a member of our camp, and you show up nude, you're welcome. We're not going to exclude anybody from participating in the life of our camp. Um, so that's, and, and sort of the driving principle with that had to do with consent and safety. How do we make this a safe place for our campers knowing sort of we're in this ethos where there is automatic consent for nudity out in the, out there. So that's the policy we came up with. But what I appreciate about this as an example is so many times all of these norms are given for us. And they sort of glom on, you know, other norms get glommed on and all of a sudden we're a particular kind of community and we don't necessarily have intentionality around why these are our norms. Whereas starting at Burning Man, we've got to ask from the ground up, like, what do we feel about nudity? Um, where does nudity fit in the gospel or whatever? And, and to create norms that are safe and respectful and uh, fit within the gospel is it's a great experiment, I think. Well,
0: it sounds not unlike what many conversations would have been like in the early church, you know, where they may have been engaging with a pagan community who had certain cultural expectations, and then they had to engage with that culture in a receptive and integrating way while still respecting their culture, offering them something potentially different or challenging. Or, or maybe even something just to ponder or engage with that was radically different than the, than the immediate paradigm. I heard you speaking to someone in an interview and they asked you about if you were received negatively by anyone. And I don't, I don't recall you espousing too many of those experiences, but one thing I, that was really potent that you said that resonated with me was that if that was present, you considered yourselves a vessel for receiving their pain and you didn't accept that as negativity or judgment. Could you expound on that? Because you'll probably elaborate on it more eloquently than I can, but it just, maybe if we engaged with culture, even in our own communities that way as Christians, maybe we would get a better reception because I think maybe there are burdens that people carry that, unfortunately could have come from an experience with the church, and maybe if we weren't hostile to that, but maybe if we received it and owned it, maybe even, we could maybe help bridge that that hostile gap between us and, and some people in culture.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, I, I alluded to this briefly when I was talking about our first year as a camp, but Prior to the first year when we created a camp, our experiences of bringing Christianity to the Playa were wholeheartedly positive. We had these services at the temple, and we did some cool things. I'm going to go down a tangent before I answer your question, but the other thing that's kind of fun about this experiment that we're doing is creating rituals, being liturgists, and creating rituals that fit this ethos. So one of the things we did on Wednesday was we called Wednesday Ash Wednesday, and we took the ashes from the previous year's man burn and temple burn, and we used those and we blessed people with the words that we say in the Episcopal Church, which is, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. In this environment that's very dusty, their, their entrance ritual a Burning Man is rolling in the dust. Um, if you're a virgin going to Burning Man, the greeters will invite you to roll in the dust and do dust angels because you're going to get it everywhere anyway. So this place that identifies with the dust, we take ashes and do, you know, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. And we gave them all vials of this dust ash that they could then take out. And so just being creative in that way has been great fun for us. Now, back to your question. So we did these services at the temple. They were well received. We said Burning Man needs a Christian camp. We create this Christian camp, and that first year we had hecklers riding by, and they would say, you know, silly things about our sky god or whatever. And we had someone come. I was pretty sure testing us um, at the very beginning when we first set up, coming um, mostly naked to our camp and and being kind of rude. And I that's when like on day three, I, I shifted. I was like, oh, maybe our job, maybe our job is just to bear the pain of people who have been wounded by the church. And that's, you know, like Christ on the cross, sort of bearing, bearing the sin of the world. Maybe our job was to just be here and like be a heat sink, be a, be a pain sink of people who have been hurt by the church and be non-reactive and non-judgmental and just respond with, you know, I love you or whatever. And that's how I framed that year one of our camp. And we did that. And then year two was completely different. Year two, it was like we passed the test. And in year two, our attendance at temple services went from 15 to 70, 80. Um, We had people coming by and saying, thank you for what you're doing. The, The organization has was very good at you know taking care of us and giving us good placement and that kind of thing. So I really feel that that yeah I think that that was an important role for us to play in the beginning and if we had been very reactive to that pain you know it would have t- communicated something completely different about who we were.
0: You know that's not unlike many pacing r- rituals we experience in other walks of life. You know, anytime you approach a new group, a new atmosphere as an individual, you know, people want to bet you out, you know, so they might uh, jab you or call you out on something or make fun of you just to see how you react. Once you show your true colors and that you're there to give, not just to take you're you know, you're there out of a sense of love and devotion to whatever the cause is. I think people are like, okay, they're one of us. And it sounds like maybe the second year people remembered you and they said, Hey, they weren't thinking there's the, those flying spaghetti monster worshipers. You know, they were thinking, Hey, there's our friends, those Christian people. Right. That's, that, that's incredible. I think that, I think that speaks volumes to the degree to which y'all were there out of a sense of ministry and not out of a sense of judgmentally calling people out that, which wouldn't have got you very far. I'm sure. Well, there's a certain, a certain amount about Burning Man, and I've never been. I look forward to going, and especially after hearing like a project like yours, I, I feel like not only would I like to go just out of curiosity, but there's actually an opportunity to serve there. But there's something about, there's a lot of overlap between Burning Man culture and psychedelic culture. To whatever degree you, you understand that overlap, can you elaborate on that? Do you think do you think Burning Man is kind of birthed out of psychedelic culture or do you think it it fosters it? It's my understanding that there is a lot of drug use at Burning Man. And I assume some of that is what might be deemed spiritual and enlightening and some of it probably not so much. Could you maybe discuss some of that integration and overlap that psychedelic culture has with Burning Man culture?
1: Yeah, and substances are i'm certain substances are used a lot at burning man um you don't see substances being used because it's illegal so and because it's illegal like you don't see people smoking pot openly and then you know all the other substances are pills or whatever so it's not it's not a culture that like if you don't you don't see it um if, if you're not in a community that's actually you know where, where you're doing it. So it's a very safe place. It's not a place that you would even know there was a lot of drug use going on, but I know that there's a lot of drug use and a lot of psychedelic use. And so the, the, whereas You know, in the default world, talking about using psychedelics is something that people are uncomfortable with at Burning Man, talking about like if someone is talking about using psychedelics, there's no looking askance at that person. That's just an assumption that people are using psychedelics at Burning Man. And while I was there for the five years that I that I went, people would want to have the conversation with about psychedelics and Christian spirituality. And I had zero capacity to engage that conversation um, because I had no experience with drug use and when we were preparing for the 2020 burn, we have some campers that are experienced in using psychedelics, and we were going to start offering some talks about psychedelics and Christian spirituality, and then COVID hit, and that never happened, and I've been now having conversations with Hunt about this, who, who you interviewed, so I think, I think that's going to be A a significant growing part for what we have to offer is conversations around psychedelics and Christian spirituality, because psychedelic use is a given at Burning Man. And what what a need is because of that is people having some spiritual framework, some spiritual support. The presence of the church saying, "Here's some ritual you can use around the use of the psychedelics, so that it provides this grounding and this framework that helps helps you have an explicitly Christian experience. You know, helps helps connect your Christianity with your use of psychedelics."
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's what I thought might happen, given the kind of surge of interest we're experiencing right now amongst Christians with that topic, and I think. It appears to me be, to be very healthy. It's more of a, a healthy inquisitiveness, not a, an abandoning of former principles. Seems to be people are interested given that it shows positive influence in people's lives. And I realize that there's a wide variety of experiences that people have with psychedelics, both positive and negative. But I think I think the topic is very ripe for discussion amongst Christians now. And I think that it's important that we develop an understanding of the topic, especially someone like yourself, who who is in a leadership capacity, um, because those questions are going to come. That's one thing Hunt and I discussed, uh, I believe is kind of off the, the podcast record, but our concern was that, you know, Christians are watching films, they're listening to podcasts, they're reading blogs, they're learning about psychedelics, but maybe out of concern for the reputation or maybe ego, what like we discussed earlier, an unwillingness to maybe come to their religious leader and discuss it. There needs to be some place they can go where their questions about these things can be answered and where they can learn about it and decide whether it's, it's right for them or right for Christians or possibly right for someone they know who's, who's struggling with mental illness. We have to eventually answer these questions in the context of our Christian faith. And I think that road is going to be challenging. I think there's going to be a lot of opinions and a lot of people who are overly ambitious and a lot of people who are unwilling to discuss it in a healthy way. But I think that's where we are right now. We're trying to figure that out. We're trying to engage with psychedelic culture and come to a comprehensive understanding as people of faith about what that means for the future of society.
1: And I I think there are parallels and I didn't think about this until you were just speaking parallels between the church and psychedelics and the military and psychedelics. And my my wife is an army chaplain. And, you know, in the army world, the military world, you know, drug use is just not on the radar at all. Psychedelics are not on the radar. We get, you know, piss tested all the time. Um, there's a lot of taboo around drug use, and at the same time, we're now learning that there's great benefit for PTSD and for veterans in in use of psychedelics, and the military culture is going to have to wrestle with the fact that there's this benefit to psychedelic use for their members. And, and what does that look like and how do they make it available safely? And, you know, we're, as the church, we're learning that psychedelics has great spiritual, can have great spiritual benefit for our members, but we're in a culture that's not accepted it. And I think, I think there's going to be, there's sort of a similar trajectory, similar challenges in those two realms.
0: Well, how has your experience at Burning Man impacted the way you view your calling and your relationships outside of that, that Burning Man culture? When you go back to everyday American culture, particularly now, you know, serving in, in a, you know, a more conservative area of, of the country, um, how does that impact the way you integrate that? What's your experience there with people at home in the everyday Christian community? Do you think there are some takeaways or maybe some overlap in how we, how you view your experiences there versus your experience at home?
1: Well, I think the church has a lot to learn from Burning Man um, as an organization in terms of how they, how they do what they do and they create the community that they create, and how do they transmit their values from year to year when maybe a third of the burners have never been before. And yet they do a really good job of creating an environment where, whether you know the 10 principles or not, four days into your time at Burning Man, your behavior begins to change um, because there's something about the ethos. I think the church has a lot to learn on how to do that. In terms of, like, personally, it sort of reignited my fire for what a community can be and what the church could be. Also, personally, my growing edge at Burning Man, for me personally, is being a little more pray- playful and a little more creative. So it's invited me to, to pay attention a little more to play in my daily life, which I've has been very anemic as an adult. I've gotten mostly positive feedback from people wherever I go in the Episcopal Church when I talk about Burning Man and in part because the church is trying to figure out who we are in this changing world, and they're looking for bright spots, and this camp at Burning Man, oddly enough, is thriving, um, so they're, they're engaged about that. I'm sensitive to our time. I'm going to need to go.
0: Okay, yeah, I, I was aware of that. I, the, the difference in our time, time zone threw me, but yeah, I recognize that you've got to go. Brian, I really appreciate you joining us today, and I look forward to an opportunity to further expound upon about how the church might learn from culture and how, in doing so, we might have a greater impact on culture in the future.
1: Thank you. And I've, I've really enjoyed having this conversation. And I was wondering if I could close with offering the blessing that I created for that first Burning Man.
0: That would be very much appreciated.
1: Okay. The world now is too dangerous and too beautiful for anything but love. May your eyes be so blessed you see God in everyone, your ears so you hear the cry of the poor. May your lips be so blessed that you speak nothing but the truth with love, and your hands so that everything you receive and everything you give is a sacrament. May your feet be so blessed that you run to those who need you, and may your heart be so opened, so set on fire, that your love, your love, changes everything. Amen. Oh,
0: Amen. Thank you, sir. That is beautiful. And I applaud your work. I think you're doing, doing great work for the church and for the world.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Grace and peace, sir. Good day.
1: All right. Yep. right. Bye-bye.
0: I would like to express my sincere gratefulness to the Rev. Dr. Brian Baker for joining us on the podcast and offer my prayers for God's continued blessings on his ministry. I would not be surprised if some of you have criticism in regards to Rev. Baker's ministry. Some of you may argue that he is participating in or condoning an arena of pagan revelry and the church would be better served if we spent our time protesting such events instead of participating in them. Or, some of you may argue that instead of blessing people, he ought instead to be demanding their repentance. To which I would say, maybe. Each of us is blessed with unique gifts, equipping us to serve the kingdom of God in our own unique ways. Some of us are best equipped in working with children or the elderly, some of us to meet the needs of the homeless and hungry. Some of us called as missionaries to the most remote or hostile places on earth, while some of us are just called to the care of infants in our local church nursery. We cannot fulfill our Lord's great commission if we are all safely huddled within the comfort of a walled garden, bidding those who will to enter in. Some of us are called to venture into the world, bringing the light of Christ, meeting people where they are, And I believe that Reverend Baker is doing just that. During our conversation, Reverend Baker made reference to the 10 principles of Burning Man. I researched the 10 principles and would like to share them with you now. The 10 principles of Burning Man. Radical inclusion, gifting, decommodification, radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, communal effort, Civil Responsibility, Leave No Trace, Participation, and Immediacy. If you would like to learn more about Burning Man, including an extended explanation of each of the ten principles, you can find out more for yourself at BurningMan.org. As promised, I'd like to play you out today with a special song. The song is Fire by Australian Roman Catholic nun and musician, Sister Irene O'Connor, from her 1976 album, Fire of God's Love. Join me in our next episode as we continue to explore the relationship between our faith and psychedelics. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you.